This is the Parenting ADHD Podcast with Penny Williams. Each week, Penny shares proven ADHD parenting strategies and her hard-won ADHD mama wisdom. This is not your physician's podcast. Penny discusses the genuine grit of the moment-by-moment peaks and valleys of this special parenthood. She'll lift you up and empower you to help your child and your family thrive. It's time to beat the chaos and challenges of raising a child with ADHD. Here's your host, Penny Williams. Welcome back to the Parenting ADHD Podcast. I'm so excited today to be talking to Lauren Pace, and we're going to talk a little bit about creating the right environment for kids with ADHD so that they can succeed and thrive. Thanks for being here, Lauren. I appreciate you joining us on the podcast today. Will you start by introducing yourself to our audience? Let everyone know who you are and what you do. Hi, yeah, my name is Lauren, as she said, and I'm um, a child behavior coach. And so I've worked with children in preschools and in homes. And I have a master's degree in human development and family studies, specializing in infancy and early childhood. So I um, am very passionate about behavior in general and challenging behavior. Mm -hmm. And a lot of those kids naturally come up as kids who have been diagnosed with ADHD. Um, And so it's something I'm super passionate about helping parents understand and helping the world see um, their world through a different lens. Yeah, so important because I think, you know, you and I were talking before we started um, the episode about how ADHD behaviors are always awesome are often seen um, with judgment um, because they look like, you know, what we label bad behavior. And so, you know, being able to take on their perspective a little bit and understand that that's really not at all what it is. It's, it's not willful and intentional a lot of times is so powerful for parents. Yeah. There's this quote that I um, read the other week that kind of helped me reframe it even more every day. I feel like I'm reframing behavior, but Mm -hmm. it was, um, it children do well if they could do well. So, um, they're not doing well because they want to, or they're not, not doing well because they don't want to do well. It's because they can't do well. And so if we look at them seeing, Oh yeah, they won't do that. They won't listen. They won't do this. It's this judgment in our head, but if we switch it to can't, then we can stay curious and figure out what they need from us. Yeah, we talk all the time on the podcast about um, kids do well if they can. Um, that's how Ross Green. Yeah, Ross Green. <laughs> yeah, huge fan of Ross Green and his work. It's so powerful um, for families, both of kids with ADHD, but I think really anybody. I think it's a good oh, absolutely for every kid and every family. Um, but yeah, when we start with that lens of saying, okay, kids want to do well. They are going to meet expectations if they can. Then, like you said, it leaves the door open for figuring out why it's not going well. Exactly. And and that's what I try um, in all of my courses to teach is kind of this process of 
first figuring out the function of the behavior. So why are they behaving the way they are? If we just address the what, so if we're addressing, okay, my child's hitting other kids. If we just address the what, then we're not getting that underlying meaning of behavior. And so that behavior might shift to something else because we can stop it, um, but we never met that underlying need. And so they're not able to communicate that need appropriately still. I love that you pointed out that they might shift that behavior um, to express, you know, behaviors communication, then that behavior is expressing something. So if, if we don't meet that underlying need, then they could shift the behavior in a different way to try to communicate it. I hadn't really thought about that. Yeah. And it's kind of sad because like, even if your child's maybe really aggressive for a while and you're like, oh, well, we, we, took care of that problem. Like they're not aggressive anymore. Maybe it's because they're internalizing all their behaviors, which can end up impacting them much worse. Yeah. Yeah. Emotional health is, is important too. And I, I think that's why in addition that this approach is so powerful, Ross Green's approach or just believing that, you know, behavior is communication mm-hmm. as we're, we're removing all of that judgment, all of that, decision that somehow the behavior is um, an ethical or moral or character flaw. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And instead of looking at them as willful or defiant or labeling them as, you know, a hard kid, a bad kid, we can look at them through that curious lens, like I said before, and look for the missing skills and think, oh, they're overwhelmed. They're having trouble with these skills. And instead of our thoughts of they're lazy or they want attention, we can think, how can I help? Yes. Yes, that's my favorite phrase. Um, I call it the magic phrase. How can I help you? Um, So often that can at least soften an intense outburst. Um, It at least shows your child that you're trying to understand and you're trying to be helpful rather than just punishing or being very authoritarian. Exactly. And if we just rely on rewards and punishment, we're not getting to the root of that behavior. Um, Because there's definitely a place for um, consequences because we want to help shape the world and help them see, you know, what's right and wrong. But if we start with consequences and end with consequences, then we're missing the chance to help them learn those new skills. Um, We need to find the stressors and reduce them, find the unmet needs and meet them, find the skills that they're deficient in and teach them. Absolutely. Let's shift a little bit and talk about environment. I think awesome. you know, that mindset piece is definitely a big part of it because if you, again, if you're thinking about behavior as willful or defiant or lazy, then you're not going to meet your child's needs with their environment either. Yes. So um, another fun quote that I love when it's about the environment, when a flower doesn't bloom, you fix the environment in which it grows, not the flower. So there's nothing wrong with the kid. We need to adjust our world to help them. Yeah. Uh, Yeah, that's so true. And I think, you know, I was just having this conversation with someone yesterday. You start out in this fix-it mode um, when your kid gets a diagnosis. And because I think that's, that's our parental intuition, mm-hmm. especially as moms, and there's no fixing it, you know? So we're looking at how do we make our kid fit when there's no answer for that? You will never resolve that question. And instead we have to look at how do we change 
um, the people around them, the environment around them, and the expectations so that they can succeed because they're not going to fit. And that's okay. Like yeah. there's, there's a big piece of acceptance to all of this. So um, accepting their diagnosis as a way to teach us what we need to help them with instead of just as, you know, the diagnosis shouldn't be um, like what you're saying. Exactly. It's like what it's, it's not all that there is to it. Like we have to um, not look at their diagnosis as something we need to take away, but look at it as the way to see the child's challenges and discover how to support their environment. Yeah. Yeah. To parent the individual child that you have. Yeah. So also um, like anciently, in the in historic times, there were hunters and there were farmers. Um, there were different types of people, mm-hmm. and there were people who would go out and explore and um, try to, you know, bring home the food. And then there was farmers who are very achievement driven. And um, it's kind of like this culture that has evolved, and we're all in this school setting now um, that's super achievement driven. And there's no place for those hunter personalities that just go out and explore. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's kind of the piece of the environment that I like to talk about is like the environment is built for these kids that kind of are um, achievement driven and really do well with like report cards and do well with grades and that kind of thing. And then when we throw in other personalities into that mix, they sometimes appear to not do well because that environment is not meeting their needs. Right. Yeah. And I think that's a big clue. You know, I teach parents that if your kid can't succeed in the environment that they're in, you know, again, it's that asking questions, why, and then doing what you can to adjust. Um, in school, I think it's so much harder. It's it's definitely been a real challenge for me in advocating for my son at school to to get what he needs, um, what he really needs. So often, um, especially with kids who are twice exceptional, which my son is um, both gifted and then has some sort of disability or more than one, um, you know, that, that asynchronous development is just so hard for people who aren't in this world and don't know um, ADHD and um, other neurological disabilities it's hard to wrap their heads around how someone can be super intelligent, but then like not write that same knowledge in an essay, for instance. Yeah. Um, and that's, that's really difficult to, to kind of balance out for people. And then, you know, then we're trying to work on the environment as parents, we're trying to, you know, have some effect on that school environment, which is really hard. Yeah. So when I was a preschool teacher, we had a couple of these, these children, um, and it was just so rough and I didn't have the education or skills that I needed to help them at that time. Um, and so I started to really seek out how I could help these kids. Um, one was diagnosed with ADHD. He was four. Um, and he would be doing behaviors that were very kind of looked at as defiant. Like he would, he would stab kids with pencils and like what we really, yeah, very aggressive. Um, and it was alarming people who were the victims, parents were like, um, 
this is like psychopath behavior. And I was like, no, like he's the sweetest kid ever. It's just, you know, like trying to explain it to other people is really hard too. Mm-hmm. Um, but it wasn't until I really observed the behavior and figured out the function of his behavior. He, first of all, there was a lot of things that came up um, that could have been prevented when he got overstimulated, when he, um, didn't know what was coming next, stuff like that, he would act out. And it was almost like this fear, um, of what was coming next. And he couldn't really transition well. Mm -hmm. Um, and kids with ADHD sometimes have this, they're super intelligent in many ways. And then sometimes they have this processing deficiency, this cognitive processing deficiency, um, where they're still stuck in that one thing that you were doing 10 minutes ago and they haven't shifted to this new thing. Um, so that can be really hard. Yeah, that's a real challenge. And I think, um, you know, it's, it's hard to educate people on what these behaviors could be, you know, and another piece of it is that ADHD is a developmental disability. So Mm -hmm. kids are two to three years behind their same age peers in a lot of these skills that you're talking about. And so, you know, when we see the four-year-old who's really aggressive, a lot of people would say, and parents included, well, you know, he's four, he should know better now or something like that. And um, we have to remember that at four, they may have a lot of skills that are really only that of a two-year-old. And that's very different expectations. Yeah, for sure. So what happened with this kid is we ended up um, seeing the function of his behavior was, well, first of all, he bit stressed during certain times, but then he was unable to communicate that he wanted to enter play, that he wanted friends. So he's stabbing kids and you're like, oh, he's like, doesn't want to be around people. But actually he was having trouble communicating that he wanted to enter the play. He was just trying to get their attention in some sort of impactful way. Um, So then we were able to teach him those skills and go with him to the behavior instead of just doing consequences and, um, moving him out of the room, we really helped him in those, what I call the green arrow moments. And I would love to talk about that if you would like to, um, where we could teach him those skills and he was able to thrive and stay in the classroom. And it was amazing. Yeah. And I'm just thinking, you know, if you had continued to try to punish that behavior out of him, or if you continue to treat him like a neurotypical kid, um, when you remove him from the situation or, you know, you're actually, that would be doing the opposite of what he was trying to achieve, you know, what he was trying to communicate with that behavior was that he wanted to play with others. And so removing him because of the behavior is actually giving him the opposite of what he was trying to achieve, which only then makes behavior worse. Yeah. And then he might amp it up more and more and more to try to get that need met. Yep. So yeah, it was, it was definitely the biggest, I mean, that's what ended up me going to grad school because I was so like, just, it was a light bulb moment. Like this is amazing to view behavior differently. Um, because instead of expelling this kid, he was able to thrive and continues to thrive today. Yeah. It's so amazing. And you know, when we have people in our kids' lives who really at least try to understand and try to look at it through this lens of behaviors communication, it makes a monumental difference in the lives of these kids. Yeah, exactly. A lot of times we're kind of in this fixed mindset, like, oh, she needs to learn um, 
self-control or his mm-hmm. behavior just comes out of the blue. But if we can look at it from like a learning perspective, he needs help with self-regulation or, you know, let's look for the patterns and settings. This is coming from somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I, we had a functional behavior assessment in FBA when my son was in fourth grade, I want to say, which has been quite some time ago. Um, he had a huge outburst in the classroom and he was actually throwing and shoving chairs and desks and they had to remove all the students um, because of that for their safety. It is the only time that has ever happened before or since. Um, and he is finishing 10th grade next week now. So this has been uh-huh. a long time. Um, and what had happened was he was he was in the wrong classroom with the wrong teacher, first of all. And he she had a point system and you got tickets and then you bid at this auction on toys with your tickets. And he was never able to get hardly any points because she was very rigid and there was no distinction between what he was achieving and what the other students were achieving. And so this particular day, he had a toy that he was totally fixated on that he really wanted. And um, someone else, of course, was able to get it because he had like two tickets and all the other kids had like 40 or 50 tickets. Oh, that's so hard. And it was not a situation that I was aware of until this happened, unfortunately. Um, and, and fortunately, the school principal knew him and me and had been working with us and there was no punishment involved from her. She just called us and said, you know, he's having a really hard time you probably want to take him home because after an outburst, a meltdown like that, they're just drained. Yeah. You know, they never want to be that kid. Um, And so we were introduced to what a functional behavior assessment is. And someone from the county was called in a behavior specialist to do this FBA. And I was just awestruck at this process that we were really breaking down the behavior. We were looking for the triggers. We were looking for um, what he was perceiving that it might do for him if it was a behavior like that. Um, And then we were talking about what strategies can we try now to address the perceived function, not the behavior itself, i.e. punishing, but the perceived function. And the teachers were in the meeting with us, so they were getting the same um, kind of education on this process and how to look at it that way. And it was so powerful. Um, You know, really empowered me on the way that I moved forward. I had not yet discovered the explosive child in Ross Green by then, so I was not aware of the CPS model at that point, but it's very similar. And so, you know, I always encourage parents when there's a behavior issue at school, ask for an FBA, ask for an FBA because that's so good. They rarely recommend it. And, you know, this behavior specialist said, wow, your kid is like not even in the same league as the kids who are on my caseload. Like, you know, kids who are constantly hitting others, beating up others, hitting teacher, you know, severe, severe behaviors. And this was just kind of a one-off incident, but it really illustrated how powerful that was. And fortunately, he was moved to a different classroom for the last nine weeks. He did not have that teacher anymore. And um, we were able to recover slowly, but it was really traumatic for him. I mean, he- Yeah, that's hard. 
still at 16, he will talk about that sometimes, but that really feeds into this conversation about environment. You know, that classroom environment was the opposite of what was good for him. Um, And then, you know, it very clearly escalated behavior because he felt trapped and he didn't have any way um, to really communicate what was going on more effectively for him, even at age, what, nine maybe in fourth grade. He was not able to articulate what was happening and how stressful and painful it was. Absolutely. And I think that kind of going into the environment is relationships, like having someone that they can trust in their environment goes a long way as well. Yeah, I love that thinking, not just mindset, but also relationships. I mean, in parenting, there's so many variables, right? Yeah. Talking about so many different things and they all have a lot of value. Um, in the parenting process and in our effectiveness for our kids. Yeah. Um, Using FBA is exactly what I do in my preschool. Um, And now I'm trying to help parents who don't have kids with a diagnosis as well um, use this process to understand the behavior is communication. Um, And so then we can look in the environment and a lot of times just making a little tweak to the environment can change the behavior so much. Yeah. Let's talk about environment at home a little bit. Okay. Um, what can we, what do you see as kind of places that we could do better as parents in the home environment? Um, what strategies might you share? Okay. So a couple of things when I'm in the home that consistently comes up is um, one of the functions is children are unable to handle disappointment. And sometimes that disappointment comes with you turning off the TV. And sometimes that disappointment comes with, oh, we were going to go to the zoo today, but we can't. Um, And sometimes it's just as simple as losing a game or something like that. Mm -hmm. Um, So handling disappointment is a really hard skill for even some adults, right? Like we see people in the road just having trouble handling disappointment. Um, But having a safe place is something that has been super helpful for families that I work with. Um, So so, like a a retreat kind of place? Yeah. And so I use safe place instead of timeouts. So the difference between a timeout and a safe place is timeout is kind of used to shame or punish and safe place is used to um, develop self-regulation and to be able to calm down yourself without feeling forced into it. Mm-hmm. Um, and that space to do it. A lot of kids need yeah. space and the quiet to do that. Yeah. And so like I was talking the other day about the safe place and someone made the comment, well, adults don't have a safe place. You don't get puppies and hot chocolate um, when you're having a hard time or like something. And I'm like, okay, well, actually <laughs> when I need a break, I, I have learned the skill to say, I need a break and I go in my room or I take a shower, I take a bath or whatever. So adults actually do have the opportunity to use the safe place. Um, Whereas if you're relying on that time out to teach the skill, then when you're in an altercation in work later in life or something, then you have to have someone else tell you, go take a break Um, versus I need a break. I need a minute. Just let me think about it. Um, so it's actually a super developmental skill that can serve us the rest of our life to be able to say, I need to calm down. Here's some ways I can do it. I'm going to go to my place and I'm going to breathe 
and I'll come back when my body feels calm. Yeah, I was, um, Holly Moses, who's a behavior analyst, I was talking to her recently in the last couple of weeks, and we were actually talking about how she rewards her own sons who both have um, some neuro typical um, disorders that she rewards them when they say what they need, when they say, I can't do that right now because, or I need a break. And then we can talk about it. You know, when she's rewarding them for building these self-advocacy skills, which is awesome. Absolutely. Being assertive for yourself and understanding feelings is something that took me until my adult years to really learn and understand. So it's so cool that so many moms are teaching this skill in their homes now. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's really not, it's not mainstream. It's not something that we're taught to do. You know, we can read the general parenting books and not be told that we need to teach our kids to advocate for themselves, to, you know, take time for themselves when they need it or to take a break when they need it. Yeah, and I think that's why this one lady who said the puppies and cocoa comment was so taken back by it because she's like, well, my kids turned out t- fine. I, I said I would kick them in the bum and they turned out fine and they listened and all these things. But um, it's, mm-hmm. it's a different way of thinking to mm-hmm. to talk about feelings and to allow them to feel what they're feeling. And um, instead of saying, don't cry, it's just saying, it's okay to cry. Why don't you come in here and calm down? Yeah. I've started to really focus more on that with um, saying that every emotion is okay. You know, again, it's something that we grow up thinking, um, you know, certain emotions are unwanted, um, that we shouldn't, shouldn't show them, you know, crying or being super angry. And really every emotion is natural. It's what we do with it. And now that my son is 16 and, you know, sometimes he gets upset and he cries and he's a 16 year old boy. And I say, you know, it's okay to be really upset about this. Um, you know, what, what can we do to help you in this situation? What do you think? you know, might help you to feel better to um, talk about it or which talking about it is never his answer. He never <laughs> wants to talk about anything um, that's emotional. Um, he has started actually taking a shower. Uh, it's funny that you had mentioned that earlier. That's totally he mine. <laughs> to calm his emotions when he's, not when he's angry, when he's sad. When he's angry, he wants to go outside and like beat the bushes and <laughs> That's awesome. Releasing that emotion in some way. So whether it's crying in the shower or beating a bush is so important because otherwise it builds up into this tantrum and it, it's going to be released at some point. So if we keep it in, um, it, it might come out in abuse later. It might come out in like a complete meltdown on the floor. Can't get up. Um, so it's, it's so good that you're doing that and that he knows his outlets. And it's damaging too. When kids hold in their emotions, um, you know, there's lots of studies that show that their, um, their propensity to have depression or anxiety as adults is much, much higher. Absolutely. Uh, it's not healthy, but it's, it's the way our culture tells us that we should be, especially mm-hmm. boys and men. Um, especially. And that's why I really have made a very concerted effort with him to work on the fact that all his emotions are okay. 
and showing them in certain ways is totally fine. And then, you know, how you work through them is what we work on and what's important. And, you know, it, we've, the going outside and beating the bushes is actually a lot of progress because we started with, you know, having a meltdown in the house or throwing things in his room or breaking, you know, his iPad or his phone or, you know, these. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Like in the moment, I'm so angry. This is right by me. I'm going to smash it to, you know, I'm going to go outside. I'm going to let off some steam. Now, tearing up all the landscaping isn't ideal either. So, <laughs> it's like yeah, moving you know, into something else. Shifting, but it's all about baby steps and progress. It is, you know? yeah. And celebrating those baby steps because that's amazing. Like you got to give yourself grace and be like, wow, we've come so far instead of, you know, forcing it to be something too soon. Yes. And give yourself grace. I love that you said that. It's so, I see so many parents who are so hard on themselves and that ties back into mindset and to um, your stress management, which then ties into your physical and emotional health. You know, the way that we um, forgive ourselves for our mistakes, but also recognize that we're human and we're going to make them and that it's okay um, is really something that more parents need to know to do and need to start practicing. Yeah. And I think that as parents, it's important to know that if our child misbehaves, it's not a reflection of who we are as a parent. And it's not that they need more discipline or they, um, or we're not doing well. Um, there's so many different temperaments and so many different children and combinations of children out there, um, that we can't know exactly what to do. Um, and it's just not a reflection of who we are as a parent. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, again, that's something that is ingrained in us as a parent. We think that um, if we parent well, then we're going to have this um, epitome of a great kid and a great adult later, right? And it's it's really damaging to ourselves. You know, I've learned only in the last few years how monumental my own thoughts and thinking are to my own health, um, but then to the way that I'm interacting with my family and my kids, the way that I'm teaching them to manage, right? If I'm always flying off the handle, then I'm modeling that when you're frustrated or disappointed, you fly off the handle, right? So yeah, exactly. human sometimes, and we're not always going to be the best example. No one can be, um, but just know it, you know, and it, it's a practice. It takes a long time to get there where you can really stay in a more positive mindset and work from that place. And it's not that it's all sunshine and rainbows by any means. It's just that you have more hope and optimism. You know things will get better rather than being the victim who this happens to and you don't, you can't fix it you know, which is really easy to get in that place with a child with differences. Yeah. It takes work to kind of dig out of it. I was very much the victim for a long time. Um, and it was really an epiphany to recognize that I had much more control over what was happening than I thought I did. And it all started with the emotions and meaning that I attached to things that happen and my own thoughts and mental health, you know, my own wellness, um, in my head, so to speak. Yeah. Which is so important. Um, and also like 
there's, um, just that you, you know, everyone can have, the, you can have you, oh, let me say this differently. You can tell the same story in a way that paralyzes or a way that empowers. So yeah. it can paralyze you to be in this place. Or you can say, look at how much I have made a difference. I was chosen to be this boy's mom. Um, and it's empowering to know that I've made this much of a difference and been this helpful and, you know, all of those things. Um, I think also the latter, if, if we're embarrassed by behavior connected to the behavior, then, um, sometimes we lash out in ways that we, we don't mean to, Mm -hmm. um, because we're embarrassed and we're trying to protect the image of ourselves as parents. Um, and so it's important to also have that mindset so that we don't exaggerate, um, a situation. Yeah. And we should say that, you know, this, this work on yourself and being more um, of a survivor mindset and that sort of thing completely ties into environment and the conversation that we're having because your, your mood and the way you walk through your life is creating a certain mood and environment in your home for your child. Yeah. And they can pick up on resentment or um, that victimization. Like they won't feel like they're good enough because you know, you you're you're tying the image of who they're supposed to be to this image in your head that you had when they were born or whatever um but yeah I think also what's really cool about what you said is like sometimes um you do lose it or you know have a difficult time and you you voice it out loud or whatever um what's really cool you said like we can't model it perfectly all the time but what's cool is we can model that when we do have an outburst ourselves that we can make it right we can either apologize or we can come back out um and say you know what I should have gone and calmed down when I said that um what I really meant was this to my safe place Exactly. And so like, sometimes we do have those outbursts, but if we can model, like, even though we make mistakes too, then they understand, okay, I'm not such a bad person because my mom can even make mistakes and admit it. Mm -hmm. So it's actually kind of cool to model that as well. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's a learning experience for our kids too, that we do make mistakes, that everybody does, you know, then they're not internalizing that there's something wrong with them Mm -hmm. as you know, they don't see other people make mistakes. Um, and we do tend to hide our mistakes from our kids. You know, we try mm-hmm. to cover them up. We try to not share that information with them. But I think it's much more useful if we actually do. Yeah, if we bring them up in a not self-depreciating way, just like, you know what, it was wrong of me to do this. And here's how I made it right or whatever. Just talk about some of those mistakes every once in a while. Don't make yourself like this you know, little victim or whatever to everything out there. But to talk about it every once in a while is so amazing for these kids that their parents aren't this all-knowing being that they have to try to live in the shadow of, um, that everybody makes mistakes and it's okay. Yeah, it's so powerful. Um, You had mentioned something about green, green arrow or green? Yeah, the green green arrow moment. Yeah, so... um, the green arrow moment, this is one of the biggest, probably one of the biggest things that I try to teach besides behaviors communication. Um, so when a behavior is escalated to the point of a meltdown or a 
you know, lash out a tantrum, even internalizing, like they won't talk. They're kind of just shut down. Mm -hmm. Then this is considered the red arrow moment. And a lot of times this is where we put the consequence. So, um, let me give an example, um, say of like my child. So my child's two and a half. And if we are like watching a show and I turn it off and then he starts crying and freaking out, like he still wanted to watch it. Then I, um, a lot of times parents would come in this moment, like say, well, we're not going to watch it because this, this, and this, and try to explain the logic of it. We have to go all these things. But in this red arrow moment, their brain is shut off. They're completely not there. Um, and so when we want to teach new skills to children, we can't wait till the behavior is escalated to teach those skills. We have to teach it in the green arrow moment. So the green arrow moment is the neutral time, the neutral space where they're just playing or before you go to an event or something like that. So if you're working on entering play or if you're working on um, being able to communicate your needs, then you do it all day long in green arrow moments so that when a challenging behavior comes up, they have that skill um, instead of waiting for the challenge to come up to teach it. Yeah, I call the red arrow moment the amygdala hijack. Exactly. Exact, that's exactly what it is. It, and it's so interesting, like you said, with the Ross Green method. So what I use is called positive behavior support. And when I listen to Ross Green's book, I'm like, this is the same thing with different words. And if you read some of these other authors, it's like all the amygdala hijack and all these things. They're saying the red arrow moment or um, just different language for it, but it's the same thing. And it's so amazing and fascinating that um, it's been discovered by so many different people. And I wish that people would, you know, that parents could access that information earlier. It's only, my son was probably diagnosed for uh, at least seven years before anybody had mentioned or I had read that when they're intensely emotional, then physiologically they can't access they the rationalizing part of the brain. Yeah. That's so insightful and it completely it really is. changes the way then that you respond. I had a family member who was in the children's hospital. They had um, some a- severe anxiety and depression and um, their parent learned that in there. It's like if they had learned that, you know, four years before, maybe they would have never gotten to that place. But it, it was actually life-changing education for them. Because they were able to then look at, you know, I can't even touch this right now. Let's just let it calm down. Maybe go to the safe place. um, And then we'll come back to it in the green arrow moment. Because the only reason why parents like push it, like at the park, if someone hits another kid and they go to it, it's for the parents, not for the kid. Um, And so we really just need to take that time to just let them come back into that green arrow space. Yes. Yes. I mean, I, my inclination naturally is to rationalize. I yeah. Rationalize everything. I want to rationalize everyone. I, yeah. Know, little out hard. Like, Look, you know, I catch myself all the time doing it. And then I'm like, nope. Can't. Yeah, so that information was so helpful to me because I realized, you know, well, no wonder that never works. Right. <laughs> exactly. Logically impossible for him to be in the middle of an absolute meltdown and to hear anything I say, much less process and use it. So it's crazy that 
yeah, I wish that everybody knew that, that it was in like, you know, the general parenting book. So much of this stuff yeah. would be valuable for everyone. So good. We are coming to the end of our time together. Was there anything else that you wanted to be sure to add? We've, we've touched on a ton of things here. Um, I think, you know, that covers a lot. So let's leave it at that for today. Yes. It's a lot to process. <laughs> it's a lot. Aware of that. And I could go into each thing for hours more. So mm-hmm. this was good. Completely. Yeah, but this is a good overview, you know, of um, those kind of foundational pieces that will help us so much more in parenting kids with ADHD. Absolutely. Right. Getting our mindset right. Understanding how their brains are working a little bit more. Um, It's just so crucial and powerful. I thank you so much for sharing some of your wisdom with us. For everyone listening, you can get the show notes with links to Lauren's website and other ways to connect with her, as well as links to the resources that we've discussed in this episode. Go to parentingadhd.com. I'm sorry, parentingadhdandautism.com slash 061 for episode 61. And you'll have all those links there. So again, I thank you and I will see everyone next time. Thanks for listening to the Parenting ADHD Podcast. If you connected with this episode, please share it on social media. Be sure to visit parentingadhdandautism.com to join the conversation and take advantage of Penny's online courses and summits, retreats, parent coaching, and fantastic bonus content.